Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Greg Thomas. Greg is CEO of the Jazz Leadership Project. He curates and facilitates business workshops and humanities programs for a range of organizations, including J.P. Morgan Chase, Verizon, the NYPD, TD Bank, and Google. He's written on jazz and democratic life for Arrow, New Republic, The Root, New York Daily News, The Developmentalist, and his own blog, Tune Into Leadership. Greg's a senior fellow at the Institute for Cultural Evolution and an advisor to the Consilience Project, as am I, right? He's also a co-producer of the annual Shaping an Omni-American Future event. Greg has lectured at institutions such as Columbia, Hamilton, Ben-Gurion University, and Harvard, right? (laughs) And I normally do not mention people's ethnicity on the show because usually it's not relevant. But in this case, I am going to mention that Greg is a Black American, grew up in Brooklyn, New York, has family roots in Georgia, and currently lives in Connecticut. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be on your show. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, Greg, actually, you invited yourself, right? Greg reached out to me and suggested, let's do a chat. On um, He uh, suggested a title, Untangling the Gordian Knot of Race. And I looked into his materials briefly. I said, I think this guy's got some things to say, so let's have him on the show. So it's great to be here. And you know, one of the things I enjoy, frankly, about my show is I do a fair bit of research for each show, on average about 10 hours. And, you know, I listen to pod. Actually, I often don't listen to podcasts. I get transcripts of podcasts, read them, et cetera, read articles, et cetera, and just track down things, right? And one of the things I love about my research is discovering new authors that I didn't know about. And as I was doing my research, I stumbled across a guy named Albert Murray, right? Never heard of him. Oh, How could that be? Okay. How could I not have ever heard of Albert Murray, as it turns out? And I'm right. currently reading his book, The Omni-Americans. And I got to say, wow, this guy is great. There you go. I'm so glad to hear that. You know, if I can be an introduction to Murray, I will have done some good in the world. Right. Before we jump in to to a whole bunch of interesting topics, maybe you could give us, you know, a minute or so on the Jazz Leadership Project, because that also looks interesting. And I wish that it existed back in the day when I was a business practitioner, because it looked like it would actually be, unlike a lot of these goddamn training things, it would actually be (laughs) of use, right? Yes. Well, the short version is that the Jazz Leadership Project is a a business run by myself and my partner and wife, Jewel Kinch Thomas. And we use the principles and practices of jazz music as a way to enhance leadership capacity and team cohesion in a nutshell. But we do that through a variety of principles and practices that are heard and felt in the music, but that application directly in the workplace with individual leaders, as well as teams who work together on projects and such. So it's a, it's a wonderful analogy and metaphor. And we find that when we share the analogy and metaphor and the music itself and tie those together, bridge them, 
that people get it, whether or not they were into jazz or not. So it's a lot of fun, but it's also very educational and very practical at the same time. Yeah, it made sense to me because you think about, especially you know, early stage companies, where a lot of my experience was also later stage companies, you know, the idea of improvisation, but with a theme and, you know, the, and who holds the baton moving around at various times, depending on what's going on, you know, it actually made sense. I go, damn, that's a useful metaphor. <laughs> Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. So why do we need to untangle the Gordian knot of race? We do because we have been caught in this Gordian knot, this twisted, confused and confusing idea and a set of practices and behaviors deriving from such that for the last 400 or so years has just got us in a jam. Now, of course, there are many, many, many problems in the world unrelated to race. I mean, when we talk about a meta crisis, there's a let me use a technical phrase. There's a shitload of stuff, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that we have to deal with. But race in terms of like identity, in terms of how we perceive ourselves, in terms of how we interact with other people in the United States, in primarily Western nations, say, it, it, it's been, pun intended, it's been colored by this idea of race and a process that's called racialization, both of which are supported by a racial worldview. So it's, you know, it's like there's a socialization process that we all go through as, as individuals, you know, as, as from being a child to an adult, you get socialized. And part of the socialization has been the acceptance of the idea that we are parts of different subspecies called races. So we accept this, you know, usually it comes as a part of what I call unconscious culture. When you're just growing up by the time you're seven, eight years old, you just observe, you hear how people talk, you look at TV, you're part of media. And this idea of races, primarily black and white, okay, which leaves out a whole swath of people, of course, and then we just continue speaking, thinking, and behaving as if those, you know, those terms and ideas are real, particularly biologically. That's racial essentialism. So the differences that we see externally, you know, you, Jim, uh, you have lighter skin than I do. I have more melanin than you do. Right. And there's a, a process through which, you know, there's there's a sorting certain attributions are given to these differences. And then they're essentialized where it's like this is actually has a biological basis. Stereotypes are developed and then people actually believe, think and behave as if these differences, which are based on in part, phenotype, are real and are more important than the things we share in common. So when we untangle this Gordian knot, when we look at the actual history of this, when we look at how false it is, how 
Uh, it's a part of what my late friend Stanley Crouch called the all-American skin game, the decoy of race. You know, if we can take a look at it without getting caught up in so many of the traps that when we talk about this topic, there are a lot of traps. There are a lot of dead ends that we can go down. And I've been thinking about and writing about this for some decades now. And I just think that we need to, you know, face it. We need to face that what we call racism is actually tied closely to the very idea and concept of race, the process of racialization, and a racial worldview, which basically, you know, if you think about John Verveke's basic definition of worldview, he says, you know, worldview is a, it's, a, it's kind of a, a guide, a guideline for how we see the world and how we act and behave in the world as agents. So if we see the world through the lens of race, then it's like, well, the world is made up of these races and therefore we act and behave based on that. And it's a bunch of malarkey, man. I've always, I've been amazed at that. I mean, I learned the biology relatively early that the differences between the races are tiny compared to the differences within the races, right? Exactly, and, exactly. And I guess I, I was, uh, frankly, I grew up in a fairly racist place. My dad was a DC cop. Uh, most he and all of his buddies were terrible racists. And I used to argue with them all the time and say, now, why do you hate black people, right? And, and, I, and I tried to drill into it. And they, I'd cause their heads to explode because they didn't actually have any good reason, right? And it was clear to me that it was one of these asinine distinctions. And then I, I later learned that it's surprising Surprisingly recent historically, at least the black-white thing, right? Very much so. That's right. You go back to the Greeks and the Romans, and while they hated everybody who wasn't a Greek or a Roman, they didn't hate black people any different than they hated other white people. In fact, they had great respect for Hannibal, right? The military man and other people. Mm -hmm. And uh, best I can tell, and I don't know what your thoughts on this is, as far as I can tell, it may well have been the slave trade, you know, uh, that produced this because the Christianity, Catholic Church still at that time, forbid, in theory, slavery of fellow Christians, right? And and even when blacks then became Christians, which many of them did, they had to kind of come up with the sleazy story that somehow blacks were not full humans to allow slavery. That is so true. That's a part of it. I mean, so there's- yeah, I think that's a big piece of it. Yeah, that's a religious dimension where they looked at the story of Shem, Ham, Shem and, and Ham. Yeah, that's all. I mean, that's just that. after the fact bullshit to, right. to justify right, right. to justify, justify right. slavery. The fact that you know, supposedly you weren't supposed to enslave fellow Christians, but but they but it was too profitable, so they had to find some fucking bullshit excuse, essentially, right? Well, there you go. I mean, that's that's true, and this is why the Field Sisters, uh, Barbara and Karen Fields, in their book Racecraft, they actually argue that racism existed before the concept of race and those two things you know get so you have you have this practice where you know if you start with since 1619 which has become a very controversial year in the last few years because of the 1619 project but that's when you you had the first shipment of 20 african uh, enslaved people who, who came to these shores if you start from there, you actually have a group of various people who were indentured servants, and they weren't all so-called black people. 
I mean, you have people from different European nations and different parts who were working in, under that status. And about the late 1600s, there was a rebellion, Bacon's Rebellion, in which there were groups of so-called black people, so-called white people, who actually worked together. And there were folks who didn't like that. And so there were laws that started coming into being where they actually had this distinction about white people and certain rights that people who were not white did not have, whereas the people who were white had. So they codified this in law. And this was for the purpose of, as they say, dividing and conquering. And so after a, a certain point, this, the association between an African origin, dark skin, all of that, to being enslaved in a system that was chattel slavery, slave property, and being enslaved for life. So when you do that in a country and in a context in which the very idea of freedom is a founding principle, there's a big, huge cognitive dissonance, big, huge contradictions. So what do you do? You know, my friend and colleague Greg Enriquez talks about, you know, culture in terms of justification systems. So how do you justify this? Well, you justify it by saying, well, these, these people, they're, they're really, you know, they're subhuman. You know, they, they, they have all of these inbred, inborn deficiencies. So, you know, and then you give biblical justification. You give pseudoscientific justification. All of this to justify being able to exploit people generation after generation. So, you know, that's that's what actually happened historically in a nutshell. Yeah. But it's still the foundation of it is so erroneous, both both in terms of being biologically true and also. And I, I you know, the social construction piece, the certainty this to, for us to go beyond to transcend race. We're going to have to kind of deal with some of these terms and ideas first before we can move beyond it. That's why. It's this process of untangling. So what is socially constructed is racism is socially constructed, okay? Not race, okay? So yes, there were people and groups, there was a system in place that exploited people based on race, and that's racism. And this racial worldview that we were born in developed. Yeah, essentially, is a justification for the system of exploitation, right? Exactly. Because otherwise, we you're you're violating Christianity and you're violating the Enlightenment view that you know all men are created equal, right? There you go. If you're going to say all men are created equal, the only way you can keep chattel slaves is saying they're not men, right? That's right. They're not. They're not. They're essentially, they're subhuman, right? And, right? and so it's a classic horrible justification. You know, before we go on, though, we should, you know, we should, you know, I think both agree that. Chattel slavery was a particularly horrible form of slavery. You know, if you look at other historical forms of slavery, the Greeks and the Romans and the Chinese, et cetera. Generally speaking, people weren't treated formally as property. They had some rights. Breaking up to the families typically wasn't done. American chattel slavery 
and 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 also other Americans. Keep in mind that the Caribbean islands actually had slaves before the U.S. did, and Brazil was a slaveocracy of tremendous proportions until way after the United States. But the let's call it the American form, America Big A, North and South form of slavery was a particularly horrific variety of slavery in the historical context. There's no question about that. Absolutely. I mean, because you know, there are historians, there are people who say, well, yes, the system of slavery existed, you know, from back in the time of the Egyptians and the Greeks. Yeah, and that's true. Yeah, Moses and those folks, they were slaves, right? That's right. So, but you're right, chattel slavery, where you are literally property that can be bought and sold, families broken up, beaten and exploited for your labor, and you are born with that status. That is a particularly horrific and brutal form of slavery. We, we definitely have to acknowledge that at the same time. And this is where some of our anti-racist activists and academics uh, fall down on the job, in my estimation. You have counters to that system all throughout the same history. From, from the Quakers and various movements, the abolition movement and that type of thing. You have, you have so many responses to that at the same time. And the irony of the very ideas from the Enlightenment being the basis upon which those movements are based and a system in the United States where you can have redress and address these ongoing problems within the very system of government. So as, again, Stanley Crouch would say, you used, you know, th there's a lot of blues attendant to, you know, the American government and the history of the American government. You know, as we said, this, it was codified into law and legislation. Supreme Court uh, solidified it and crystallized it, you know, with the Dred Scott decision and such. At the same time, it's those very ideas of freedom that inspired and inspired people to fight against that and in time for it to be abolished. That also has to be acknowledged. And I think that's a hugely important point. You know, people point out that's very, very common today to talk about the hypocrisy of the slaveholders who wrote the Declaration of Independence. And that is true. I mean, you know, many of right. the signers of the Declaration of Independence were slaveholders, right? That's right. However, they did say those magic words, all men are created equal. And over time, and it took a long time, and a lot of the Things in between were pretty fucking terrible. You know, the post-Civil War Jim Crow era. I mean, that was a gross reversal of what should have happened. But to your point, the Enlightenment principle, all men are created equal, did provide an opening that eventually took too long, but eventually allowed people of good faith to realize that this is all fucking wrong shit, right? And no, doubt. And no other society has ever done that, really, right? Absolutely. That's why, you know, my, my, our, our mutual colleague and associate, Jamie Wheel, in Recapture the Rapture, you know, he talks about how our system of democracy with the idea of equal treatment beyond religion, creed, belief, even so-called race, that idea and ideal is something that is an ideal to aspire to, to admire, 
to reach for and to continue working towards. He calls it the infinite game based on uh, James Carr's finite and infinite games. It, it, it is. And without that aspiration, without an understanding that we have, we live within in the United States and in the West, a system of government and, and, and governance that at least in theory and aspiration is democratic and is an open society where you can have free enterprise. These are powerful ideas and practices that we can't just willy-nilly throw away because whatever, you know, Zach Stein talks about being in a time between worlds, but whatever the world that is that comes after this one that we're in, there's going to be changes. There's going to be changes in all types of systems. But I would say that certain fundamental rights, the freedom of speech, the right to associate, I mean, these fundamental classically liberal values are kind of foundational for whatever comes beyond that. Wouldn't you agree? And wouldn't you say that that is also connected to the idea of game B? I agree that, and of course, to some considerable degree, the ideas of free speech are under fairly serious attack right now. That's the truth. Well, let's go on to that first. Before I do, I want to do a little sidebar, just tell a personal story. You mentioned sure. Stanley Crouch, and I have a love of Stanley Crouch, a huge love of him. You know, I, back in the 80s, I was still a fairly conservative Goldwater Republican, right? And for, for one reason, which was anti-communism, and I will stick with that, God damn it. And after 1992, I left the Republicans because I did not like their, their homophobia, their nativism, and the implicit racism in things like Pat Buchanan. So I switched. Hmm. Never became actually a Democrat, but left the Republicans. By the way, back in the 80s, when I was still you know, pretty hardcore goal or Republican, I used to sneak and buy copies of the Village Voice for one reason, uh, which was to read Stanley Crouch. And here's another thing. I, I don't know if I've ever told anybody this, my wife. In 1992, after I sold my third company, I uh, took two months off. Then we got back into the world. I seriously considered reaching out to Stanley and offering to hire him for me to go up to New York for three months and spend two hours a day with him to teach me all about jazz. Oh, my God. You never told anyone that? That's wonderful. He would have been he would have been the one to do it, I tell you. I figured two hours a day for three months and have him just play records and talk to me. And, you know, if he talks anything like he writes, that would have been the most amazingly fun thing. Amazing. Because to my mind, he was like an H.L. Mencken of the late 20th and early 21st century. That's a good way of putting it. And the thing is, let me tell you something. He was a friend. And he was a great storyteller. So you would have had a rip-roaring time, I can tell you that. Yeah, and I, I really i have always regretted not doing that. Because, you know, I do know a little about jazz, my wife a lot more. But I will say, you know, the kind of jazz that I'm comfortable with is very standard mid-50s jazz. You know, if I, if I have a saint in jazz, it's Coltrane. Right. Uh, but uh, I also like Miles Davis, you know, Sonny mm -hmm. Rollins, Thelonious right. Monk, people yeah. like that. But I'm sure there's, I know there's a lot more to jazz than those classic guys. But when I want to listen to jazz, that's what I generally want to put on. But I would love to have been able to explore jazz with a raconteur master like Stanley <laughs> Crouch. <laughs> I hear you. I mean, the mid the 50s, as far as jazz, 
the mid fifties to the late fifties is a very, it's a sweet spot in the history of, of jazz music. Some call it a golden era where you had a confluence of just the greats and great styles of jazz were all present at the same time from Louis Armstrong, you know, the, 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 Paterfamilias of, of jazz, the father of jazz, to Duke Ellington and Count Basie and their orchestras, to the style called bebop that came in the 40s with, with Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Bud Powell and Max Roach and Thelonious Monk. But then after that, you had various styles that flowered, you know, hard bop, cool jazz, modal jazz. You had all of those going on at the same time. So that that's a wonderful period. That's a that's a sweet spot of the music. And oftentimes when I'm playing the music, I'm playing either that period or music that's very influenced by that time period. It's funny, this morning when I was finishing my prep, I actually put on Giant Steps by Coltrane. And, 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 and that's just like, to my mind, it's not his most advanced. I think his most advanced is a uh, album called A Love Supreme, which I love also. Well, when you say advanced, that's relative. I mean, The Love Supreme, uh, I mean, wow, what a spiritual monument that book is. But Giant I Steps, love that too. But harmonically, the thing about, about John Coltrane was that his exploration into scales and harmonies, by the time he got to Giant Steps, which is after him being a central part of Miles Davis's first great quintet that came out, of course, with A Kind of Blue. And when he went off on his own as a leader, Giant Steps represents his exploration into harmony. So you find that there's a different chord change like every two beats, you know. Now, now I usually don't do this, but I'm going to I'm going to just show a little bit of what I do privately. My 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 wife and, and and my daughter who by the way is now a student at MIT, you know, they've had to put up with this for a long time. But I as a teenager immersed myself so much in jazz that I learned solos by Charlie Parker and, and Clifford Brown and, and, and John Coltrane and many others. And I learned the solo to Giant Steps. So I'm going to do a little bit, if you don't mind. Go, go for Steps. it. And I could continue. So this is a little bit of of his solo. That's great. I guess before we move on, then later under my wife's influence, actually, because she, you know, she's much more adventurous musically than I am. I did pick up two other jazz people, one from the very early, earliest period, Django Reinhardt. And Ooh, then yeah. now we listened to him a fair bit, actually. And then at uh, the other end, Keith Jarrett, and we actually saw live Ooh. in Boston one time. That was really quite yeah. an experience. Oh, yeah. Django, a master of guitar. And Keith Jarrett, I mean, he had one of the, first of all, at, what a virtuoso as a, as a piano. On the piano, man. Oh, my Unbelievable, God. right? And his trio, his jazz trio for decades was one of the greatest uh, ensembles in the music. Absolutely. I love it. And when I do, when I do workshops, sometimes I use an interpretation 
of his uh, of his trio by his trio performing all the things you are and it's just fabulous because it shows the swing the flow what we call the ensemble mindset in jazz that we apply you know in jazz leadership project Keith Jarrett he was wonderful Indeed. All right, let's get back to our topic here. Let's move on to the next topic that I have on my topic list. And that is a term you use a fair bit is that you feel that it's time that we learn to transcend race. And you put together an essay, which I found very interesting, called Why Race-Based Framings of Social Issues Hurts Us All. Tell me where you're going with that. I hear you. Yeah, I think a goal and aspiration should be to move beyond or to transcend race, racialization, and a racial worldview. We do that, and we've gone a long way to addressing and resolving the problem of racism itself. Now, to be frank and to be mature, in-group, out-group dynamics will most likely always exist among human beings. And bigotry to one extent or the other, will very likely always exist among human beings. But it doesn't mean that we have to base those on the idea, a false idea of race. So it's, a, it's an aspiration for us to move beyond being confined in terms of the way we look at ourselves and others by these ideas. And so I would say, Transcending race, you know, to use an integral term, like you want to transcend race, but include culture because culture is real. Culture is very, very real. And that's my emphasis. You know, it's like it's one thing to say you want to take away or move beyond something. But how do you do it first? And what are you going to embrace in place of it? And one of the great things for me is culture cultural expression. You and I have been talking about that. We've been talking about that by talking about music. And as we talked about different artists that we loved, okay? Now, they happen to be mostly uh, Black American as an ethnic and cultural term, as I I use that. You could also say Afro-American. But there are many, many great jazz artists from other cultures and cultural groups and ethnic groups. I mean, many. And and that's one of the things that, for me, has allowed me to actually move beyond considering race. When I was a teenager, I immersed myself in the music and I did it based on what I heard and what I loved. And I didn't allow a false idea of race to confine what I listened to. So I fell in love with Dave Brubeck quartet and Paul Desmond's sound on on alto sax. I I fell in love with uh, a saxophonist named Zoot Sims, who's part of a school of tenor saxophone playing derived from Lester Young. I love Zoot. I fell in love with Phil Woods, who after Charlie Parker, one of the great post-Charlie Parker saxophonists of all time, one of the greatest saxophonists of the 20th century. None of these people are classified as black, but they touched my soul. So when I got to college, I went to Hamilton College in central New York from 1981 to 1985. So when I went to Hamilton, I started learning details 
about the slave trade and Jim Crow, things that I only had an inkling of starting in high school, not just through what we studied in high school, but by seeing programs like Roots, Alex Haley's Roots, that was that had a strong impact on me in high school. But when I got to college, I really started delving into it. And I these feelings of of close to hatred started coming up. And it was my love of jazz music and people in jazz music who themselves would be classified as white. And also, frankly, my love of European Western music, European, I should say, classical music, what's called classical music, concert and chamber music that allowed me not to go over the the cliff of, of racial hatred. So, I mean, culture is something that is very powerful because that's where our Internally, our values and our and the meanings we derive from the things that are important to us derive from, and then the artifacts, the what we create based on those values and meanings that show up in the world as art forms, that show up as creativity and creations, as rituals, as myths. All of those things are very important parts of human history. And we can look at those as a, as a much stronger basis and index for human motivation, uh, behavior, and aspiration than a bullshit idea like race. Yeah, and when I was reading Albert Murray, The Omni-Americans, he makes that point that American culture, yes, it, it derives from English culture, sort of, but man, does it have a lot of ingredients since then, you know, including the American Indians, and certainly uh, he calls them the mulattoes, right? The black. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, what, he, what is he, what did he call? Yeah, yeah. So like a, it's a mixed, it's like, and Frederick Douglass would call it a composite. I mean, Albert Murray, who you mentioned several times, was a mentor of mine directly as he was for Wynton Marsalis, one of the world's greatest musicians and artists and the gentleman who runs uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center as artistic and managing director. In fact, as we're recording this, I just was with him in, here in Connecticut. He's playing at the Ridgefield Playhouse. I went to see him. We were hanging out. And then on my blog, Tune Into Leadership, I just had a piece on that experience. And uh, so... Albert Murray was central to both Winton and myself, and his thought is foundational. Neither he nor Ralph Ellison, and thereby Sally Crouch, who Ellison and Murray were profoundly influential on Stanley. And Stanley actually introduced Winton to Albert Murray. Albert Murray focused on an omni-American identity, which takes a look at kind of the out of many oneness of American history and culture. So there's many tributaries in terms of America, but we have one shared group of ideas that are the basis upon which we base our very society. And so an omni-American way of looking at things takes he loves uh, Constance Rourke. She was a great cultural historian in the early 20th century. And she had a book called American Humor, which actually used the word humor, not just as comedy, but as character, like American character. And she talked about three primary figures, three primary archetypes of an American identity. You've got the Yankee who was rebelling against the mother country, of course. You've got 
the backwoodsman, or what we say Native American, who, as Murray says, is rebelling against aspects of what we call civilization, which could be a controversial claim today, but they are a foundational archetype of America. I mean, there's, there's not happenstance that at the Boston Tea Party, they dressed up like Native Americans, you know what I mean? And then, of course, there's the Negro American, an archetype of of improvisation and other qualities. So those three types, based to, based on Constance Rourke's work, are fundamental to what Murray called Homo Americanus, okay? Three foundational types, which is a variation and extension of Homo Europaeus, which he said was a combination of Greek, Roman, and the Judeo-Christian heritage. So, I mean, we are real big mixture here. We are not any one thing. So if we can accept that in cultural terms, accept that, you know, uh, as to put it in a very fundamental way, Ralph Ellison once said this to a group of Harvard students, all y'all are part black and I'm part white. Okay. If you want to put it like that, you know, that this mixture is what really makes us a people. And as dynamic as we are, but we don't have to. We don't have to hold on to the idea of race to do it. We can lean on culture, in my opinion. And Moran, you as well in your writings and on some of the podcast appearances, support the idea that a black culture is a rich and wonderful thing that should be preserved. Well, a black a black American culture, absolutely, as a foundational. One of the reasons I, I emphasize black American because if you just say black that connotes largely race within a racial context that I'm trying to, you know, wonderful but also, point. that's a great point. Yeah, yeah. And it's also culturally different. You know, a black Ugandan culture has very little in, in common Hello. with a black American culture. There right? we go. And you've got Caribbean culture. There are distinctions yeah. there. Yeah. And yeah, if yeah. you look at so-called white people, what I mean, all kinds of distinctions there. You're going to tell me that the Scotch Irish are the same as the French or the Germans, get out of here. It's ridiculous. You know what I mean? That's actually a very important point to make. And I, I love, I'm glad that you brought that up. You know, people forget how much animosity there was between the white ethnics not that long ago. You know, you, you read our literary novelists of the 20s. And my father, even, who was born in 1923, and he grew up in inner city Patterson, New Jersey, right? And he, uh, he was considered Irish, even though he's only half Irish. And he said in those days, literally, if you walk through an Italian neighborhood and you were considered Irish, you might well get your ass beat and vice versa, by the way. You know, he wasn't there saying you go. That, And even, you know, today, as much problem as we do still have around race, we're not that bad, right? And so that was the inter-ethnic. And I remember my, my grand, I didn't know that, I was a young kid, but my grandmother banned her son from her house for 20 years for marrying an Italian-American woman, wow. right? Wow, I mean, wow. Jesus Christ, right? I know. And yet she didn't ban her other, her daughter who married the Syrian. I don't know, fuck my know, but anyway, <laughs> she was just so opposed to Italians, right? And, you know, I grew up in a post-World War II suburb of D.C. where there were all kinds of ethnic groups all mixed together. And we just thought that these stories from our parents were the stupid ass shit we ever heard, right? You know, I'm going to be prejudiced against an Italian or Ukrainian or a Greek or Pol. What the fuck, right? It just seemed like ridiculous and yet in their 
age, that was as real as the black-white thing is today, maybe more so. And so that gives me considerable hope that we can move to a point where maybe the differences, obviously the differences are still there, they're real. As you say, a a Scots-Irish American is still somewhat distinct from, let's say, a Greek American. But Everybody gets along, and we think that the idea of kicking somebody's ass because they're Italian is just like, what the fuck? Only an idiot would think something like that, right? I totally agree with you. I mean, I think one of the things about Murray's omni-American idea, as I've uh, adopted it and I'm using as part of the movement that you mentioned earlier, shaping an omni-American future where the Jazz Leadership Project is collaborating with several Jewish organizations, uh, Combat Anti-Semitism Movement and the American Sephardi Federation. It's important to recognize what we hold in common and our differences, but to not allow our differences to be that which divides us into these tribes that want to destroy each other. It's not necessary. But the thing is, what we're talking about is a real kind of developmental challenge because fundamentally, as Jamie Wheel points out in Recapture the Rapture and elsewhere as he talks about, fundamentally, you know, we're tribal as human beings. So it's so easy for us to get into these tribes. So the question becomes, can we developmentally speaking grow beyond our tribal roots? Now, to a certain extent, you're going to be parts of different groups. You know, and that's one of the things to to recognize. But do those groups have to go to war with each other, rhetorically or otherwise? And in fact, in the game desynthesis, we say the real group is the group of 150, right? And that can be mixed of all sorts of different kinds of people. And that that's really your tight group. And, you know, there's no reason that has to be segregated by race or religion or anything at all. And once you built that strong cell, the Dunbar number, we call the proto-V, and then those groups interrelate with each other and are all part of the broader community, and we all accept each other, but also our differences. The idea of coherent pluralism. We agree on some things, and we, we agree to disagree or say, hey, people just have different aesthetics, different ways to live, right? Exactly. And that, that, is, and that, that is fine, right? Oh, but, and this is so anti, unfortunately the trends in our society today, where this attempt to force everybody to believe exactly the same thing. And if you get one word wrong, they want to cut your throat, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. This cancel culture dynamic, which is really not new, is just, you know, the current manifestation. I tell you, that's why, you know, you look at the work of the Consilience Project that we're both, you know, on the board of advisors for. I mean, the media, And how the media, both so-called legacy media, mainstream media, and now social media, really advances the the incentive structure of these are based on so much on conflict and so much on, let's talk about mainstream legacy media, which is a fundamental part of game A. Absolutely. absolutely. (laughs) I mean... Take a look at the local news, anywhere in the country, local news. They are going to start off with something, something crappy, something tragic, something to raise your fear, to get your amygdala going any night of the week. 
they ain't starting with good news <laughs> because it's like it's it, there's a structural thing within legacy media to use conflict. You know, I you know I'm I'm a longtime journalist. There's an old phrase: if it bleeds, it leads. I was going to just say that, but you beat me to it. <laughs> and of course, we know that that grabs your dopamine reactions, right? This is how how we are hijacked by highly emotional material, whether it's relevant or not. You know, the story, and you look at these, why do I need to know about a car wreck in, you know, Utah? I don't, but oh yeah, I happen to kill a few more people than usual. So therefore, uh, you know, they decide they have to throw that out there just to grab more eyeballs. Absolutely. And now let's take it back to race. This is why these horrific instances where unarmed Black people, black men in particular, but it's not just black men, it's black women also, or black, you know, people. And I want to use nuance in my my languaging because I try not to fall into the race way of actually using language. I actually try to confront it by saying racialized and identified as that type of thing. So people identified as black, people racialized as black, these horrific incidents which become national car celebs are horrific, and they are. But when you look at the actual statistics of police killings of American citizens and how many are of color, there's not that much, and this is the work of Roland Flyer, there's not that much of a numerical distinction between Blacks and whites, where the distinction comes, and this is also Roland Fryer, is in the use of force with people who are racialized as black, which is, that's important to recognize. But getting back to the media, you have instances that are very similar to the ones that become cause celebs that happen to other groups but you don't hear about them nearly as often. Why is that? Because I think there's an inherent bias in legacy media to reinforce and leverage for profit this whole racial dynamic. And it's really messed up. Because when you're talking about the media, you know, this is the window through which we see things that's happening in the world. And so I, I, the media is a big problem in this also. Yeah, and it's a, it's a bigger syndrome here. I mean, you mentioned in one of your essays, and frankly, I've read both of these books, and the ideas of uh, Ibram Kendi and Robin DiAngelo are part of this, both New York Times bestsellers, referenced constantly. They're part of this broader syndrome. You know, what's, you know, what you, what's your take on those two thinkers in particular? Yeah, yeah, there, there are distinctions among them, but I, I think we can talk about them together in that they are both you know, best-selling authors, you know, you, you see these lists of books that folks should read, you know, after George Floyd's murder, and they're invariably on them. I mean, I agree with John McWhorter that Robin D'Angelo's book on white fragility is a just a bad, poorly written book, but there's more to say about that. I'll give you uh, more specifics. And Eber McKendy, I just, you know, 
I guess he had the right title at the right time, how to be an anti-racist. And that becomes a bestseller also. But frankly, both of these thinkers, and I know this is going to really sound like I'm disparaging them, but if you, you put it in, in grade terms, I mean, these are like, frankly, junior high school to high school level thinkers, in my, in my opinion. I know that even Max Kennedy has a PhD in history and he's written you know, a book on history. I've read that book also. But when you get to their ideas as far as anti-racism, it is so, the people we've been talking about, we mentioned Albert Murray, Ralph Ellison, Stanley Crouch. I mean, these people shouldn't even be mentioned in the same sentence, really, because their ideas are just so simplistic and so ungenerative as compared to these really great thinkers of the, of, and writers of the 20th century. Take Robin D'Angelo. I mean, one of the things that I've thought for a long time, Jim, is that, okay, if we're going to move beyond race, if we're going to transcend race or embrace what someone whose work I very much appreciate and have learned from Carlos, Dr. Carlos Hoyt Jr. He wrote a book called The Arc of a Bad Idea, Understanding and Transcending Race. And in it, he talks about a, a non-racial identity, that there actually are people, and he he, he, in the last part of that book, he profiles many of them who just do not consider themselves in racial terms. They just don't. And they are a group of people who say, well, I just don't buy into that. So I've said to myself for a while now, well, what do we, you know, if you pull the rug from other people, so many people, because of our socialization and racialization, consider themselves in racial terms, if you just say that race isn't real and you pull the rug from it, what's left? And I've always thought that ethnicity is something that people could turn to, not becoming ethnocentric, no, but people have an ethnic background. You mentioned your own. I consider my own Black American heritage an ethnic and cultural identity. But Robin D'Angelo says to People who are racialized as white, ah, 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 don't even try that. Don't try to go to ethnicity. No, no, no. You're white. And if you're white, you're culpable, you're guilty. And the best thing you can try to do is become less white. Okay. When I read that book, I said, this is a mean, bad person. I mean, oh, she's sadistic, literally, right? And I was also wondering, what was a what would a Moldavian make of this, right? <laughs> you know, a Moldavian is a white person living in the land between Romania and Ukraine, right? Mm. And, uh, you know, the Moldavians mm. had no involvement in colonialism, slave trade, or anything, right? And what would a Moldavian make of, of this? Right? I hear you. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very, <laughs> very American-centric. And, you know, David Fuller, uh, founder of Rebel Wisdom. Yeah, good friend. A wonderful yeah, friend. Yeah, absolutely. He one time, and I really appreciated this, this reference, he called Robin D'Angelo like Nurch Ratchet of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I, yeah, I, I, well, I love that. Perfect. 
Yeah, isn't that perfect? On the other hand, I did find Kendi's book, How to Be an mm-hmm. Anti-Racist, much more charming. I mean, he- Oh, absolutely. Because he he's telling his personal story. I his mean, personal that's, that's, story was really right. quite moving. And yes. uh, his brutal honesty about himself was like amazing. On the other hand, his basic formulation, I go, he, he just made it up. No evidence, nothing. You know, it was just, it was essentially a linguistic move rather than a scientific move. I hear you. Yeah. I'm glad you, I'm glad you make that distinction because I would, I would agree. I mean, his personal story, his own evolution. But again, that's where we go to the whole developmental piece. Is that the end of the evolution? I say no. No. I mean, okay, this just takes some of his basic ideas anti racist. Okay. I could say that, okay, you're against racism. Well, I'm against racism too. But his particular formulation of being an anti-racist still accepts race as a concept. And in fact, it further reifies race as a concept, as does Robin DiAngelo. So in fact, that's the whole woke thing, right? Which is, you know, I refer to this woke thing as racist neo-tribalism, essentially trying to force people back into these categories when in reality, people should be blending and mixing. And and let's not forget, how did the Irish and the Italians settle their businesses? Mostly in the bedroom, if you want to know the truth. Hello. Well, so the blending and mixing, that gets to the cultural intelligence that we need because see that's the way culture works see culture doesn't i mean i'm thinking i'm speaking of culture as a dynamic culture doesn't give a damn what your race is and people who come from different cultural backgrounds particularly when you're talking about the west and most particularly the united states we have been trying on different masks, different traditions. Oh, that looks, I mean, I'm a New Yorker, man. I come from, I come from New York, which means that I've been exposed to all kinds of ethnic mixtures. And, you know, when I was coming up, I loved, you know, Kanishas, you know, which came from a, a, a Jewish heritage. I love these different, you know, trying these different parts of of a New York heritage. And it's like, I could embrace it all. No, I wasn't native to it. No, but that doesn't mean I can't appreciate it. And it extends far beyond food to dance, to music, to visual art. You know what I mean? Yeah, you mentioned that you loved Western classical music and yes. Afro centric jazz and blues you know my wife is a complete maniac on blues right i enjoy blues but i enjoy jazz more but she loves blues i mean she'll just listen to blues for hours you know that's like well your well your wife's you you mean but you know a lot of times when you think about our wives and you think about the women in our lives man there's some wisdom that they have you know they got a little more wisdom than we do they got more wisdom than we do on average (laughs) Lord knows it's true. But when you look at the blues, man, the blues is a foundation for jazz and for American music overall, even for gospel music. And the Rolling you know, Stones, don't forget that. Those were, they were a blues band originally, right? The, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the whole rock, the British invasion, it was it was largely blues based. Now the Beatles, you know, they I mean, you're talking about an ensemble mindset, they were a fabulous group that played blues and beyond in terms of their songwriting and stuff. But blues is a foundation. And this is why, again, Murray's ideas and, and Ralph Ellison's ideas are so important because they dealt 
very strongly with blues. I mean, Ellison called the blues fundamentally a tragic comic dynamic. So you have the tragic reality of life that's inherent in the blues, often in the first eight bars of the blues. But the comic dimension or that dimension of some hope or optimism is in that last four bars, you know, when you're responding to the tragic. So, you know, so the blues, and this is Murray, the blues is not a form that avoids looking at the low down, dirty shamedness of so much of life. But the blues can look at the, that reality and says, you know something? I'm going to give you a quick metaphor, a representative anecdote. So you got these two elder black guys and they're like, you know, they've been through it, man. They have been, you know, uh, one says, listen, man, my, my, my baby kicked me out again, you know, you know, and, and the other one's like, oh, that's a shame, man. He said, you know something? My rent's due and I don't know where, where it's coming from, man, you know? So, you know, to get to some fundamental questions, well, what do you do in that circumstance? Murray says that what often they would do is you have the Saturday night function in Black American his cultural history, which is like a ritual, right? You go back to myth and ritual. So it's a ritual where you get together and have a good time and stomp those blues away. So those two guys would say, you know something? You're right. Things are really screwed up, but you know something? I'm going to get clean. I'm going to put on my, my suit and I'm going to go to the Savoy or I'm going to go to, you know, some, some, and we're going to have a good time and we're going to stomp those blues. And Murray says it goes from like a, a ritual of like purification where you purify the scene or you purify the atmosphere. You, as he said in some, in, in some places, you unass the place. You know what I mean? It stink with stuff. You unass it. But then, <laughs> you like that. I know you I like that. that. But check this out. In the process of doing that, what goes from a purification ritual goes into a fertility ritual, baby. You start <laughs> to get it, you starting to get it on. You know what I mean? So we can continue the very species. You know what I'm saying? This is fundamentally an affirmative perspective. Well, blues music is extremely sexy, right? I mean, you know. Absolutely. That's what that's what that's what Murray said. Murray said, look, you know, one of the reasons that the, the preachers, some of the preachers are against blues music isn't because it's that he said they know people are having a good time this is good time music you know <laughs> what I mean so so when you get to the actuality of what I call the blues idiom perspective and blues idiom wisdom you've got a sacred and secular dimension you know so Saturday night that's the secular you know what I mean you you you, you, you stomping the blues of the week of work and, and troubles before and then Sunday morning, that's when you go to the church service, you know, when you're, there's a ritual of propitiation and devotion. So this is a part of a whole cultural complex that we're, that we're talking about. So, I mean, you don't hear people like D'Angelo or even Kendi 
talk about these cultural dynamics. They're so focused on race and racism. You don't hear them talking about racialization or racial worldview. So, so, so they're too limited. That's why I said, I'm sorry. It's like, you know, I don't even know if I can say it's college level. I know there will be many people who are shocked to hear me say that. But I've done a lot of reading and study over the years, and I know levels. And these folks do not match up. I don't give a damn if they're popular. I don't give a damn if they're on all of these lists that you're supposed to read if you, you want to be an ally. They are too limited in their vision and in the solutions that they propose. That is not the way to go. Yeah, the other issue that I find with this broader phenomenon called woke is something called strategic essentialism. Hmm. It's very hypocritical, right? It's to uh, pretend that we should be essentialist about our ethnicities so that we'll have more power to fight for, you know, spoils in a racialized or ethnicized or genderized fashion. And when I think about that, I said, that, you know, that sounds like Lebanon to me, you know, where they're, mm. oh, you end up with every faction fighting each other to the death in the name mm. of the faction. Yeah, I hear you. Tribalism yet again. Yeah, Gayatri Spivak came up with the concept yep. of strategic essentialism. And I think, I think they've kind of said, you know, I, I kind of disavow it now because of where, you know, where it's going. So the question is, essentialism itself, when you're saying that there are certain immutable characteristics based on phenotype, outer appearance, the size of your skull and all that kind of mess, that there are certain attributes and certain stereotypes that should be attendant to that. And that's a good thing? No. And even as a social construction, look at race as a social construction. If you do that, you're still holding on to race as a concept. So I'm an advocate for, you mentioned transcending race and a non-racial identity. I'm an advocate for deracialization. I think that we can not racialize ourselves or others. And then there's a there's another colleague. Uh, Dr. Sheena Mason, who talks about her theory of racelessness. It's like we don't have to consider ourselves in racial terms. And in fact, it so happens that on September 24th, Dr. Sheena Mason and Dr. Carlos Hoy Jr. and I are doing a, um, we have an event where re- re- resolving the dilemma of racism. And it's spelled R A C E with ISM in parentheses. That's that's Dr. Sheena Mason's formulation to show that there's this tie between race and and racism. And, you know, it's not easy. I mean, I consider myself politically a radical moderate, Jim. And as such, you know, the moderate side is that in many ways on, on issues I can I can see not only value on both sides of the spectrum political spectrum, that's kind of a centrist perspective, but it's more that I'm looking at being a moderate in terms of moderating in between those and also that middle path, you know, that Aristotle talked about and that's talked about in certain Buddhist traditions, the the middle way, the middle path. But the radical part, man, my radicalism comes on my view of race because most of us don't even consider 
speaking in a way that we don't reinforce race, let alone thinking, behaving in a way that's, that we deny that that's a reality and we don't go for it anymore. I, th- I think we have to draw the line in the sand at some point. And enough of us doing that can move us forward. That's a wonderful, hopeful thought. But I think we do need to be realistic and say that racism still exists, right? There are still. Absolutely. Uh, yes. And, you know, I, I kind of divide racism up into some various buckets. You know, the essentialist racist who literally mm-hmm. says, you're black, you must be no goddamn good. I don't care if you're mm-hmm. a Nobel Prize winner, right? right. Uh, you know, there's the, you know, the old horrible racist joke. What do you call a black man with a degree from Harvard Law School, from Johns Hopkins Medical School, and has a Nobel Prize in physics? And the answer is the N-word. Right. 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 Yeah, that, right that's right. an essentialist racist. You know, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's a small percentage of Americans today. It was a big percentage mm-hmm. 50 years ago, but we've made mm-hmm. progress, but we still have to push out that last bit. And then there's prejudicial racism. Right. Where, you know, you know, the famous example of the white woman clutching her pocketbook when she sees a young black man walk by. And, you know, frankly, some of that is from valid statistical inference, but also it's grossly exaggerated. And, you know, that's still around. We need to work on that. And the other one that is important is implicit racism. In fact, this is probably the biggest one today. If you look at the the research that's been done on things like the tests of resumes, which are identical, other than it says Jamal Robinson on one and Chad Worthington on the other, uh, particularly where people don't have much information. You know, in the interviews, once you get to the interview stage, people aren't too prejudiced. It turns out, right? They get a chance to talk to Greg Thomas or Jim Rutt, and they say, "Hey, they're both assholes. What the fuck, right?" Um, <laughs> <laughs> but at the level of resume, if it says Jamal Robinson on one and Chad Worthington on the other, you're going through 200 resumes, you're more likely to pick Chad Worthington than you are Jamal Robinson. We need to be aware of that and work against it. And fortunately, there are things like de-identifying resumes. I strongly encourage companies to do that so that you, and also to talk, I did this in my companies. I talked to my people. We need to understand that beneath our level of consciousness, there is implicit racism that it's come from this 400 years of this racial modeling. And we may reject it consciously, and I hope we all do, but it's still there and we should be aware of it. And there is still such a thing as structural racism. I give a, a very simple example of one it's not very controversial, but it's just an example of many others. Imagine a small business that's been in business for 50 years, say, doing electrical work and home repair. And it's, you know, got 100 employees or something, but it only hires by reference from current employees and not for a racist reason. But, hey, it's a Southern company and 50 years ago it was all white. Guess what? Those references are going to be mostly all white. And so the company's still mostly all white, even though there's no racist intent. It's a classic example of structural racism. And we should be on the look about for that. And we should make sure that we don't do things that perpetuate previous racial structures unintentionally. But it's probably not as big a deal as some people think, but it's, it's real. And then, of course, finally, we need to acknowledge the historical impact of racism. You know, the example I, I give there is redlining. You know, for a long while, you could not get a low-interest mortgage in majority black neighborhoods. And that significantly impact intergenerational wealth creation and intergenerational wealth transfer for black American people. And that 
and there are, is still residual harm from that. We need to acknowledge that. So while I'm well with you that you know the reification of race as this be-all and end-all is a wonderful thing to transcend, I think it's also important to acknowledge that racism still exists and it still harms the Black American person and that we should not in any means back off from the work to squeeze that out of our society. Thank you for laying that out, Jim. I would totally agree. I think there's very few people of uh, goodwill and, and, and conscience who would claim that there is no racism that still exists. I appreciate how you define various, from your perspective, various kinds of racism. And the truth of the matter is, and this is something that, you know, Carlos Hoyt, Sheena Mason, and I, and others, you know, Amil Handelsman. I mean, there's a person who also doesn't even, he doesn't even use the word black, Camille Foster. You know, he, he, there are people who do not buy into the concept of race, who analyze this process of racialization and racial worldview, but you don't have to deny the existence of racism in the various forms that you mentioned in order to do that. So, so it's not a one-to-one where I say race isn't real in terms of biological essentialism or as a social construction, but you can have what they call, you can have racism without racists. That's you get into the structural dimension that you're talking about. So we can walk and chew gum at the same time, man. You know, I can say, yes, that's true. And I can say at the same time, I'm not with the concept, with the process, with that whole identification. And I do think and strongly believe that if we have more people who are not thinking, speaking, believing, and acting in racial terms, that that will have a positive and fruitful impact uh, socially, culturally, and interpersonally with you know our relations with one another so we can move beyond not only the tribalism, but we can address so many of the problems we have. Man, we have so many problems we have to, and predicaments that we're in that we need to be able to work together beyond such superficial differences. Here, here. I mean, you know, in the same way that the Irish and the Italians worked it out. And yes, you know, one likes spaghetti and the other likes boiled potatoes. But uh, <laughs> other than that, the, the distinctions aren't that big anymore. That's where we should aim to. We're getting close to our time now. One last topic, which I think, I think, I really don't know what your perspective on this is, but because we have talked about art so much and music in particular and culture as opposed to race, which is such a nice distinction, a very controversial topic and produces hurt feelings and shit storms on Twitter and everything else is something called cultural appropriation. For me, that's a softball. I bet a nickel that you've got some thoughts on. I, I got some thoughts on that. Let it rip. Let's let's go for a, a good jazz riff here on that topic. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, one of the things I learned from Ralph Ellison, being deeply immersed in his work, is that what's called appropriation is the way culture actually works. If you think back to People, you know, think back to ancient times. The Greeks were profoundly influenced by folks in Mesopotamia, say in Egypt, right? 
the Romans were profoundly influenced by the Greeks, right? Islamic scholars who brought back many of the lessons from the time of Aristotle, for example, brought those ideas back to the fore in the West. I mean, ideas are part of culture. Practices are a part of culture. So the idea that any one group owns a particular cultural form or cultural product or artifact is ridiculous. Culture works through appropriation. That's, I mean, but, but appropriation doesn't have to be looked at in the negative sense that so many of these people talk about. It's just a part of the process. Now, do, do I deny that there has been such a thing as negative culture appropriation? No, just like I don't deny that there's racism in the past and present. I think true appropriation is when you have a person or a group of people who will steal, and it's only theft if you do not acknowledge the origins of where it comes from, you do not give credit to where it comes from, and you profit from it as if you were the creators. That's true appropriation, cultural appropriation. So I don't deny that you know, that has happened in the past. I mean, look, I mean, we're talking about the music industry. I mean, the music industry was set up to, ex well, I shouldn't say only set up to exploit. But there was a lot of exploitation of artists. And it wasn't just black artists, but there were a lot of black artists who were exploited and their work appropriated in that sense through the music industry. But I, again, we have to have more sophisticated and nuanced discussions about these things, man. Again, I, I learned that through reading Ralph Ellison. Appropriation is the way culture works. I mean, as a cultural dynamic, when groups of people are in close proximity, even if we're talking about slave owners and enslaved people, there is cross-influence. So you have in an American dance, you had the phenomena of enslaved people observing the dances of the people in the big house, creating their own dances that would imitate and even mock those dances, right? Yeah, then white people got a broom pole up their ass, and ours ain't going to be that way. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just say they, they certainly added some style and variations to the themes that they inherited, for sure. Uh, but then you had the people who had the, you know, those, those original forms. They would see the folks in the in in the fields or or in the outhouses or you know just just when they had their own time to be amongst themselves imitating those dances and then they started imitating the imitation that's this an example of how culture works you know you 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 try on this you try on that for size and you you know you say well let me adapt this happens linguistically language is and a profound example of culture. 
So you find the way language changes and is adapted and 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 formed. You know, John McWhorter is an expert on this stuff. That's not appropriation. I mean, that's just the way culture works. So so I, I do think it's an important topic to discuss. I think it's um unfortunately too simplistic in the way so many talk about it, particularly, you know, young people who are, you know, college age who are inheriting certain ideas from postmodernism, say, in reaction to modernism. So I, I think we can we can talk about it, but we need to maybe we can point to, well, these are the cultural dynamics. If someone doesn't respect the or the originator or originators and they exploit it and claim that they created it, that's a valid description or definition of cultural appropriation. Otherwise, baby, that's just the way it goes. <laughs> I love it. I figured I figured I, that that would be about your take. You know, like the idiotic idea is, oh no, at Oberlin College, we can't have sushi at the lunchroom. <laughs> what the fuck? Right? <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, some of this stuff, it goes to such a level of absurdity, but you know, people inherit bad ideas. People inherit incomplete ideas. People Unless they are truly educated, and I don't mean, you know, PhD level, I mean people really study history, study cultural dynamics over time, cultural histories, to understand how these things actually develop. You know, again, it's a it's a very blinkered, limited, and simplistic way of looking at things. Okay. Sushi is something created in Japan, presumably. And we can't have that because, you know, it might offend the Japanese. Really? Hell, it's an export, man. <laughs> you know, sushi is a part of our cuisine now. So it's a form of, of respect when you say, man, I, I mean, cause I, I remember when I was introduced to sushi back about 25 years ago, I was like, oh my God, this is wonderful. I remember going to a uh, dinner one time with Wynton Marsalis. And we had sushi, man. We loved it. You know, I acknowledge where it comes from. And it's it's an example of cultural creativity. Let's acknowledge the cultural creativity of the range of humanity. And then realize, as Albert Murray said, that as Americans, we are the heirs of the history and cultures of mankind and womankind across time. We've inherited it all. So let's, as we say in at the Institute for Cultural Evolution and Integral Theory, let's embrace the best of what came before. Let's acknowledge the shadows of what came before, not try to fall into those, those habits, but then let's try to embrace the best Look at the downfalls and see what can we create better. Uh, I'll I'll end with this. Albert Murray says that when when you look at Black American musicians, it's not like, I mean, in jazz, you know, in the dynamic in New Orleans where you had very learned musicians who, in terms of reading music and playing in orchestras and that type of thing, ended up, because of some racial laws at the end of the 19th century, having to play with musicians who only played by ear. 
So Ralph Ellison says that the techniques of jazz came from this combination, like a desire to be able to play as technically well as learned musicians, but those who played by ear, they had some great things too. So there was a real confluence there. So when we look at that history, when we look at those cultural dynamics, you have within jazz music, and this is what Murray said. He says, you know, it's not like the people who played jazz didn't want to play European classical music. In fact, that was part for many, right? Tatum, Arscapitis, and so many. That was a part of what they learned how to play. But this is what Murray says about, about not only Black American musicians, but Americans overall. It's like we learned about those things, but we were always looking for something better. You know what I mean? So it's like we can learn from the past. But what are we going to create that will be for our time and for our generations to follow even better? To not be confined to the greatness of the past. What can we do to search for something even better, even more generative, even more fruitful uh, to gather around and strive for? You know what I mean? So it's a combination of like foundations. We have certain foundations that we get from the past, but baby, we got to look for something better because we know we're in a mess and we need enough of us, enough of us to be leaders and to be out front with a new set of ideas and a new set of ideals influenced by the best of the past, but that is forward looking so that we can get out of this poly and meta crisis that we're in before it's too late because boy, we, there's a lot of work to be done. And I thank you, Jim, for your part of doing that work from your perspective through game B, for example. Well, thank you, Greg, for an extraordinarily enjoyable, wide ranging, and I would say very hopeful perspective on our situation. And it's a bit of a predicament, but I remain an optimist. The human race has gotten through worse things than this. And if we keep in good faith, working with each other as fellow humans, I think we're going to make it. I think so too, man. I agree. And I consider myself a tragic optimist as a blues man. So I agree. I love it. We didn't get to a lot of things on my topic list and maybe we'll have you back on again and talk about them. I'd be glad to. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.